This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast, the podcast where we read and review and present to you books that we think you ought to be reading or ought to be considering. The last few weeks, we've gotten a little far afield, away from pure economics, away from pure libertarianism. We had some great shows with people like Don Devine and Dan McCarthy and my great friend Alan Mendenhall. But this week, we are back with uh, Ryan McMakin. Many of you know him, of course, as a frequent writer at Mises.org and also the editor-in-chief of Mises.org. And Ryan, this week, I wanted to get back to a core book. You know, I've worked through a ton of Mises and Rothbard books over the years on this podcast, but I realized that one which I haven't done a show on is Anatomy of the State. And given everything that's happened with COVID over the last years, the last year, and all all the depredations we've seen from politicians, I thought it would be a perfect time to finally get to it. And man, oh man, does this 55-page little book have a lot of... uh, Pack a lot of punch. Yes, this is a great little compendium, an introduction, uh, a first step if you really want to study on a real scholarly level what the state is, where it came from, how it behaves, and how it maintains its power. This is a whole field of scholarship in itself and other among historians, among political scientists. Uh, and I think if you're interested in that topic, this isn't just Rothbard's opinions. It's not just some attempt to just trash the state. He's really exploring a lot of the the key scholarly issues behind it. And I think this is uh, really packs a lot just into that little uh, little essay. Isn't that interesting, though, that we really seem to spend so little time on this idea of state power and the analysis of it? Uh, you know, he's writing this a very interesting time. He's writing this. Uh, came out in 1973, so he's writing in the early 70s. This is not a particularly happy time in America. Nixon hasn't yet had his Watergate scandal. Uh, inflation's running three and a half, four percent. And when it came out, I was looking back at some of the initial comments and reviews on it, Ryan, and I saw that, for example, the objectivists didn't like it. <laughs> they thought it was just an anti-state attack, uh, but that some other people liked it as well. So this is pretty heady stuff for the early 70s. Yes, and I think there was uh, uh, this was a time of when scholarship in the state as an institution was expanding as well. You also had a lot of research into uh, its its origins in the Renaissance. You had people like Douglas North doing uh, research into what is uh, the economic history of the state, how, uh, how what was that interaction between growing wealth and capital accumulation? Uh, in, say, the 15th and 16th century, how did that lead to the creation of the state? And that's a very important issue, right? Because the the states were able to uh, take over the cities and gain a lot of capital that way. And I think that started to become a topic of much more interest. And I think it really uh, only goes back to in a few spotty places in the early 20th century, and then it accelerates a little bit in the 40s, but it's really only as a topic of exploration the last 40 or 45 years. And Rothbard was aware of this research, I think, that was starting to come out at that time. He he quotes Bertrand de Juvenal a lot, who is this French uh, political scientist who, in his liberal phase, was really good on looking at the state as a coercive and basically criminal institution. 
And this was all very uh, unusual for, for the larger world at the time. Yes, there were some scholars who were starting to explore this and put this stuff together. But I think for the average person, if you approach them with this idea that really the, the state exists because it's a band of successful criminals who managed to consolidate and regularize their power and their extraction of wealth from the larger society, people would think that was just bonkers because back at this time, I think it is still this 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 notion continued of, well, we have some sort of mystical bond with the state or we have a social contract and it only has power because we the people give it daily reaffirmation and stuff like this. That's those ideas are still powerful, but I think they were especially more unquestioned uh, 40 or 50 years ago. Right. And I think one big reason for that, of course, that analyses of state power have shifted so much is because the 20th century brought us widespread mass democracy. And in the, the very beginning chapter of this book titled What the State is Not, Rothbard takes pains to point out that the state is not us, to put it mildly. And I think, Ryan, there's, I think the language at page 11, and we're going to link to this book. You can read it in HTML format for free on our site. It's a great little book. But I think that the little definition he provides of the state on page 11 is probably uh, pretty important if you're going to call yourself an ANCAP. Well, and uh, I think understanding what it isn't really is the first step. And that is something that people don't even realize that they they believe that people just don't even question this idea of what is my relationship as an individual uh, to the state. And... So if you start thinking of your relation to the state as some sort of voluntary relationship where the state has agreed to take care of you or prevent, uh, protect you from foreign or domestic threats, and that there's some sort of quid pro quo, and also that the direction the state goes in, the choices that state of course, the state itself isn't a person. The state doesn't make make choices that the people who run the state, that when they make choices, when they decide to take the, uh, the state apparatus in a certain direction, that they're somehow doing it based on what you as an individual believe that this is just completely wrong. And yes, pressure groups might help steer the state in a certain way. But this idea that there's that the individual has any sort of real power in this equation is uh, an extremely incorrect way of looking at things. Right. And but of course, democracy, and this is one of Hoppe's big points, that democracy has really muddied this. Murray takes pains here to point out that the government does not in any accurate sense represent the majority of the people. But uh, as we'll see later in this book, you know, they've done a pretty good job of making people think that we're all somehow involved, like this is the PTA at our school or something. And not only that, that we have an interest in it, in maintaining it. So that's that's a pretty big shift over just a, maybe 150 years. And I think, too, that it was, it's a certain view of democracy that prevailed as well, and which is, I think, helps solidify the state's claim to this idea that we are the state. And uh, I think you can find in many cases an 18th century or 17th century view of democracy. And of course, many libertarian groups, which which Rothbard calls libertarian, like the, the English levelers, say, during the days of the English Civil War, sure, they wanted more democratic participation, but they viewed all of that as really just a chance to put down some sort of veto on what the state was doing. They didn't think that meant that their personal feelings, interests, wants, hopes, and desires were somehow imputed into the state. They just thought, we need some way to uh, have the middle class prevent the state from just doing whatever it wants, that there's got to be some mechanism where they at least got to run things by us. 
And that's a very different view of democracy that I think became the dominant view in the 20th century and ended up really solidifying this idea. I think before the older view and probably and certainly the non-French Enlightenment view, the non-Rousseauian view was this idea that, yeah, the state is an institution beyond you. And we should have something in place where the people who have different interests from the regime, that is maybe just middle class farmers or whatever, working men, whatever group it is you want to define, that they should have some chance on maybe stopping some of the worst things that the regime does. But there was this no nowhere was there this feeling that everybody's in it together, that everyone's going to come to the same conclusions. And then once we vote, we all just agree that, yep, that's what we're going to do. Uh, that's a very peculiar and specific version of democracy that has apparently won out and has really, I think, helped to build this idea that, uh, well, if, if if the government doesn't like what, if, if the government isn't doing what you like, you're the odd man out. You need to uh, learn to uh, play along and, and get along with the larger society. And uh, that's a pretty messed up way of looking at it, in my opinion. So this definition, which of course is familiar to us, which... Rothbard provides at page 11 is basically, hey, the state is a monopoly over a particular territory and it it uses coercion to obtain resources from people. Okay, that's a pretty standard definition of the state in, in perhaps libertarian or anarchist circles, but a lot of the public might roll their eyes at this. And of course, people uh, like I, the aforementioned objectivists say, well, Rothbard's being dramatic here. So I wanted to just draw people's attention to a quote from Ludwig von Mises. You know, no anarchist, certainly a small d Democrat. He gave a lecture at Princeton in 1958, and uh, the great Bettina uh, Greaves put this together in a little book called Liberty and Property. So he says, as regards the social apparatus of repression and coercion, the government, there cannot be any question of freedom. Government is essentially the negation of liberty. It is the recourse to violence or threat of violence in order to make all people obey the orders of the government, whether they like it or not. As far as the government's jurisdiction extends, there is coercion, not freedom. So, you know, he was clear eyed about what the state is and was. He just had thought that there were rationales for this coercion. But this idea that Rothbard suddenly took this giant leap from Mises in his identification of the state, I think it's interesting to read this quote from the 50s. Yes, this definition that Rothbard uses isn't, wouldn't even be controversial among people whose business it is to research the history of the state and its nature. Of course, this definition Rothbard didn't make up. It's uh, from Max Weber uh, from the late 19th or early 20th century. And uh, Mises himself was a big fan of Weber, at least in some cases. And that's just, this is, I mean, you can see this quote in any number of books. The state is an institution with a monopoly on the means of coercion within a specific territory. That's not like a Rothbardian thing. And on the, the side, I've, I've noted a bunch of other offer, uh, authors that use the same definition, one of whom is Martin Van Creveld, who once spoke at the Mises Institute, uh, although I wouldn't consider him a Misesian or Rothbardian. We just invited him to give a speech because he had done some good work on the history of the state. And this is the standard view, really, is that the state arose uh, from the Middle Ages, really. Uh, so in the late Middle Ages, 
uh, Europe turns away from these uh, notions of more uh, small community and family-based private forms of governance and starts to build up larger areas, uh, territories wherein there's this monopoly on coercion, where these institutions develop permanent bureaucracies. And that's, that's a key issue there is they have this permanent apparatus that maintains a constant flow of taxation and that you have now the ability of a person, a king, uh, although in some cases, right, uh, like the uh, Republic of Venice, a non-king or more of an oligarchy, just hand down its orders through military apparatus, through some sort of bureaucracy, and then the, the wishes of the people at the top of the state are carried out. So uh, the, the, I have no doubt that the general public might roll their eyes at this thing. Oh, yes, this is just too radical a definition. But among people who actually take the time to look into it, this is not something new at all. This is just the standard narrative that over time, these, these state organizations or these organizations that would become the successful masters of states, they had to subject and put under their thumb religious institutions, family institutions, local guilds, local governments, all of these competing organizations they had to bring under them, make them obedient, lessen their authority and power, and turn it all into uh, one place where they didn't have to compete with nobles or with the church to exercise their coercive means. And so they didn't have to run things by other people. They were now... Uh, truly monopolists on coercive power. And that's that's the standard narrative for the state. And Rothbard's using that here, but pointing out uh, certain things that he finds interesting and also making a lot of good observations about, say, the philosophy of the state and the propaganda and how that perpetuates the state as well. And I think that's one of the big strengths of this essay is he's, he's taking uh, a pretty... A uh, basic view of the state that a lot of people agree on, but then uh, obviously adding his own flair to it by looking at some of these specific issues that are perhaps most relevant to uh, his his own personal account that he wants to create. Well, you mentioned Weber in uh, in the second part of this book, what the state is, and again, Ryan characterized it as an essay. That's really, I think, a better way to look at this than a book. It's an essay, and you can read it on a short flight. So I, I encourage you to do so. But he brings up Franz Oppenheimer and his famous uh, dichotomy. You know, the two ways to obtain wealth is basically the political means and the economic means. And he says, in the words of Oppenheimer, the state is the organization of the political means. So it's the systemization of a predatory process over a given territory. So what I love, what's so delicious about this little section of the essay is it sort of gives us the concept public versus private crime. Well, I think the relevant quote here is provided by Rothbard in the footnotes where uh, he quotes uh, De Juvenal and says, quote, the state is in essence the result of the successes achieved by a band of brigands who superimpose themselves on small, distinct societies. So what we find then is that a lot of these uh, people, they take the standard view of the state and they say that, oh, yes, the, the state is essentially... Uh, an organization built on limited moral authority, that they're in many ways criminals, and that there's not uh, a clear reason why we should uh, submit ourselves to the state on a moral level. But at the same time, then they turn around and say, well, what are you going to do? It, uh, this is maybe the best that can be done, that if we look at the history of the state, they provided in many cases uh, some peace and some freedom even. And so what you can do is you can actually look at the state 
and and discuss what it really is in terms of its moral nature, but come to a completely different conclusion. And, and you'll find a lot of that excuse-making in the other literature on the state. Uh, and for example, you can, you can see here in a, in a short book, but a fairly well-renowned book, on the origins of the state in medieval Europe. And Joseph Strayer, the author, says, you know, to, to describe the state is not necessarily to defend it, but I think there's a lot that the state has going for it. Hmm. So they're admitting that there's a problem of legitimacy and morality when talking about the state because it does behave in a largely criminal way, but they, they don't have an alternative that they're willing to push forward. Well, and to argue out of fairness that Rothbard is making a little bit of a normative leap in this second portion of the essay regarding the state. Let me continue. I mentioned the, the Mises quote from 1958, a lecture at Princeton earlier. Let me continue uh, that quote where he's saying the government is necessarily coercive. It's the negation of liberty. I'm, so I'll continue. Government is a necessary institution. The means to make the social system of cooperation work smoothly without being disturbed by violent acts on the part of gangsters, whether of domestic or of foreign origin. Government is not, as some people like to say, a necessary evil. It is not an evil, but a means, the only means available to make peaceful human coexistence possible. But it is the opposite of liberty. It is beating, imprisoning, hanging. So that's a, that's a pretty big uh, schism between Mises and Rothbard here. Yes, uh, and I think that that characterizes, I think, the general disagreement over the state. Isn't that it's a... It's, there's not a disagreement over whether it's coercive or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, the disagreement is, is there, is there a good alternative? And I think in the 19th century, a lot of people who lined up behind the state said, no, there's not a good alternative, especially since there was, Europe was so much, the intellectuals are so much, so swept with this idea of that everything that was medieval was terrible. And <laughs> this was certainly true for Mises, I think. And, and Mises quoted the Enlightenment thinkers a lot. And you, you can find this among medievalist historians today is they're, they're chagrined and annoyed that what ended up sweeping the intellectuals of Europe in especially the 18th and 19th century was this, this idea that the Renaissance uh, was this rebirth. And of course, the whole name Renaissance, right, mm-hmm. is normative that it was this rebirth from some dark thing before. And, and historians don't even use that term anymore. They now use early modern period. But uh, yes, everything was garbage before. The architecture was bad. And we're, we're now going ha- to do things right. But, but everything that we're going to do right, we're going to go back to the Greeks and Romans, that they did it better. Now, of course, the Greeks and Romans were far more despotic than the medievals in many, many ways. And so just that, by that very nature, a throwback to the, to the ancients is not necessarily an improvement in any way. But I do think that Mises very much fell into this line of thinking. He was a pro-Renaissance guy. And uh, I think he, he liked the order. He liked the fact that these states were able to amass uh, a lot of wealth in one place. And because of that, were able to support the arts and fine architecture and public works and and I think they looked around and they saw, look how much better things are now than they were 300 years ago. The reality, of course, is that there was just more 300 more years of capital accumulation. And that really the roots of that, as shown by Ralph Rako, was in decentralization that occurred before the Renaissance and, and that the, the real building blocks of European economic uh, uh, prog- progress and health and wealth was was laid down several hundred years before. But what ended up happening is 
this idea of, okay, the Enlightenment, the Renaissance is what paved the way for, for all the good things we have now. And so you have to admit that the growth of the state after the peace of Westphalia, when we all kind of created the modern state system, it's hard to deny that a lot of good things have happened since then. So they saw this correlation and, and came to the wrong conclusion. And yeah, Mises isn't alone in doing that. I think Rothbard rejected a lot of that. He uh, was a lot more suspicious of that narrative. And so he came down with, with this normative view that really actually we uh, were way too easy on the state and impute to it too many good things. But he notes in the essay, of, of course, that this is a main building block in maintaining the legitimacy of the state is the state doesn't necessarily have to show that it's the best thing and that it's ideal and that it's wonderful and that you always get what you want under the state. All the state has to do is show that all the alternatives are worse and that you may not like the state, you may fear what state agents can do to you, but buddy, if we weren't here, things would be so much more worse. You'd be speaking Russian, you'd be living <laughs> in squalor, the warlords would be overrunning your town. That's the basic narrative. So in many cases, they're not even defending the state as an institution necessarily. They're just saying that without us, uh, you'd be way, way worse off. Yes. And that's, of course, one of the central points of the third part of, of this essay, how the state preserves itself. And and. Not only is there fear of rule by others, as you point out, hey, buddy, it could be someone else, but it's just fear of non-rule. In other words, Rothbard says states are really good at bringing up guilt. Uh, they're really good at buying off the intellectual cadre of a society. Uh, they're really good at creating vested economic interests, which doesn't just mean people who are actually employed by government. It also means, uh, you know, which is a tiny minority of any, really of almost any country, but, you know, all the economic interests which benefit from uh, all, all kinds of unholy arrangements, including tariffs uh, and just human nature. I think Rothbard makes um, not, not a concession, but a point here is that there's something timorous in human nature. Uh, it, our evolution undoubtedly rewarded us for being worried about security and probably often punished risk taking. And so... You put all this together in a blender and there's a lot of uh, psychological uh, elements going for the state. Well, and the ideological roots of the state are so, so important. Even the, the standard historians on this admit that, and, and Strayer says this, the state, yes, it's a physical institution and it has lots of guns or the people who run it have lots of guns and it, it can hold a gun to your head and make you do things. And it has armies and it has a bureaucracy. So clearly it exists in the physical sense in some way. But what holds it together, uh, which virtually everyone admits, is this idea of the state. That, as Strayer says, the state exists primarily in the minds of the people who live under them. And that if they change their minds on this topic, the state, yeah, all those, uh, those items like tanks and planes and soldiers, they would still exist but they wouldn't be acting as a group. There would no more, no longer be this collective action that makes the state possible. And how do you, how do you get the state to live in the minds of the people is you need a lot of propaganda. You need intellectuals to convince people that this is something they should believe in and that they should support. And you need a whole apparatus for this. You need uh, intellectuals who work for you. You need scientists who support your line. You need universities. And this is one of the central and most important parts 
of the bureaucracy of the state controls is they've got to have these people who ensure that the public overall buys into the idea and accepts it. Now, they don't have to necessarily be willing to fight for it, to do a lot to really forward the idea, but they do have to at least just be willing to live with it and just do nothing. Yeah, it's really interesting given everything that's happened in COVID over the past year. Here on page 28, he says, you know, people don't so much believe in uh, God granting the divine right to kings anymore. Some of these mystical justifications for the state to be an ongoing force in your life and, and something that would uh, satisfy the general public. So, some of those have actually been replaced by the new God, science. So I thought that was very appropriate for our uh, 2021 age. Well, and he talks a little bit about uh, just the, the uh, purpose of censorship and so on uh, of he doesn't use that word, but really the idea here is you need to silence and mock people who provide a narrative that's contrary to what the state wants its narrative to be. And without there, then you might have too many people change their mind and start to really doubt whatever narratives it is that the state's supporting. And they go to a lot of effort to uh, keep people in line in that respect. And you can see this all over the place. It, it seems to be magnified to a certain extent by social media, the, the mockery, the, the idea that people who uh, don't believe the, the proper line are, quote unquote, conspiracy theorists. And this is widespread. Of course, one of, the, one of the great things is, is that the state doesn't have to do it itself. The state can rely on people who are fully invested in the notion of the state and who are its supporters to do the mockery and the silencing of dissidents for it. And you could see this in other uh, ways as well as uh, the spontaneous say traditionally, the spontaneous outpourings of patriotism and the idea that we should all sing the national anthem together and we should all uh, say the Pledge of Allegiance and, and we should uh, show our support for the regime in a variety of ways. The regime rarely requires people to do this. this is, these are usually choices that people just make freely out of uh, their own ideological views. So there's something going on upstream, really. The state doesn't have to come down and command you to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, because it's not even really required uh, in schools for the most part. You can get out of it if you want, right? The idea is that most people willingly go along with it because they've convinced, uh, been convinced at a much more fundamental level that this is a key institution that they should very much support. And if you got people out there saying that this is nonsense, that you shouldn't listen to these people, that it's all garbage, uh, if you let people get away with that long enough, especially anyone who's influential and you can't just tarnish them as a drunk or a, a weird eccentric you should never listen to, then uh, obviously the state's going to respond to that uh, with uh, <laughs> a substantial amount of resistance. Yeah. Isn't that something, though, that there are so many sort of unpaid de facto state agents out there on social media, for example, just hectoring and mocking and ridiculing people? Rothbard always thought we should use ridicule against the state, but now we see it being used uh, against anti-status, right? This this idea that uh, influencers or social media figures are out there promoting vaccines or whatever they're promoting. I mean, uh, vaccines are a separate issue, but it, it's really amazing to me how uh, powerful, uh, for, from our perspective, uh, you know, people who, who believe in government would course, dismiss this as absurd. But from our perspective, it's almost a Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, I, I, th I think because they've just been convinced through their education that uh, they're, they're not a prisoner of anything. They're not being coerced to do anything. They're participating in some sort of great grand 
whether you want to call it experiment, project, whatever, they're part of the state. They are uh, the people who make it happen. The state reflects their will and their hopes and values. And so once you've bought into that idea, why why would you uh, resist it in any significant yes, way? Yes, we're all in this together, Ryan, <laughs> except some of us are in it more than others, I think, on the, uh, on the plus and minus side. But so, Ryan, not only are states stubborn, they tend to crop up despite our best intentions, and they tend to hang around for a while. Uh, but Rothbard's next chapter, How the State Transcends Its Limits, is about how they not only crop up and hang around, but how they grow. And this is, I think, a wonderful little chapter on on how states increase their power, how they not only consolidate, but expand. And, and one of the, the happy things about it is it punctures this idea of judicial review, which of course is not, has no constitutional basis. It's not actually in Article 3 of the Constitution, but more importantly, he says when the, state, when the, the courts uh, judging the state are part of the state itself, then judicial review becomes a farce. And as he says here at page uh, 31, he says, the state has in the process largely transformed judicial review itself from a limiting device to yet another instrument for furnishing ideological legitimacy to the state. And I think that's spot on. Yes, uh, th- certainly they uh, fulfill this function to a certain extent of philosopher kings, of uh, uh, highly regarded intellectuals who, right, they're, they're just pursuing what's, what's good and proper in terms of what does the law say and what conclusion can we come to? Of course, the Supreme Court, as we've explored at Mises.org on more than one occasion, is a highly politicized organization. They are not these sages devoted only to uncovering the truth, but they've been very successful at uh, putting that idea forward. And what better way to really perpetuate the state and grow its power than to make the state its own uh, judge as to whether it's behaving properly? And boy, this was quite the coup to set up this idea. Now, you know, within the American context, the idea was that uh, power would be decentralized and some of these decentralized units would be able to offer their own resistance, whether through the militia or through just legal, uh, a lack of legal assent at the state level and so on. But that all went by the wayside by really even the early 19th century. Now, some Europeans figure that a little bit better. The Swiss, for example... Uh, they waited a little bit more in favor of the the local units and and the idea of decentralization and local vetoes. There's a long history of this in, in throughout the West in terms of local units being able to veto what was being handed down by a stronger central government. But in the U.S., they've managed to put through this amazing idea that uh, the the central government itself is really the only final say on Mm -hmm. what the central government can do. And so that's quite astounding and amazing that they've managed to pull that off for so long. Well, the other thing they managed to pull off, which is pretty astounding, is if you think about it, I would argue the Supreme Court has perhaps done more injury to federalism than either Congress or the executive in the sense that they have asserted jurisdiction over cases they have no business asserting it over, and they have limited jurisdiction over cases that, that ought to be wholly considered in state courts. Yes, it uh, well, uh, what Rothbard says here is that apart from there's this imagine the idea that the Supreme Court offers some sort of veto on what the federal government has planned. And so you've got what the presidency would do and, and what Congress would try to push forward. And that, yeah, that happens every now and then that the Supreme Court comes back and says, you can't do that. But more often than not, what they come back and say is, oh, yes, this is, in fact, a proper 
uh, federal activity. This is the final word. We have now handed down our decision that says now the feds can, in fact, determine uh, local high school in middle of nowhere. You can't say <laughs> school prayers anymore because we nine people in Washington, D.C. have decided that's no good. And if you try and continue praying at your school, we're going to send in federal marshals to arrest you. And somewhere along the line, people decided that seemed perfectly normal and appropriate. Yeah. And he makes this great point that nullification of a judicial doctrine or a judicial judge-made law, we might say, necessarily implies secession. And if we think about this, you're basically saying, hey, if one tiny portion of what federal government tries to impose on us, in this case through courts, if we disagree and decline that, then that implies we could disagree with and decline the entire program of the federal government. Yeah. They, <laughs> well, once you move beyond this idea that it's the final judge for itself, then you start putting in people's heads that other parts, whether it's state or local or goodness, even maybe individuals might be able to simply uh, ignore the edicts coming down from the feds. And yeah, the natural logical progression of that is once you start going down the road of saying, yep, states can veto federal edicts. Okay, well, why not then a county? Why not then a municipality? And why not then fundamentally an individual. So that's obviously a very slippery slope from the regime's point of view, and you don't want anybody doing that. So the ideal then situation is that nobody can do that, no level of government at all, just the feds, and that helps maintain all the power in one place. But I think once you break through the dam uh, of, well, gee, are the, are the feds the final word on everything? Then you start to get a lot of people questioning that, and states don't like that sort of thing at all. So the question becomes then in the next chapter is what the state fears. What does it fear? Well, it doesn't fear its own courts. <laughs> we that, that Rothbard is pretty clear about. But as he posits, it basically fears two things, which are both threats to its power. One is some sort of external conquest by another government, and, some, and the other is some sort of internal revolution. Yeah, this was an area of research that I wish we had a lot more on from people who were real advocates of laissez-faire, was a lot more research and commentary on revolutions and wars, uh, because these are the things that the states fear the most. And because, as Rothbard notes, these actually endanger the very existence of the state. And so states tend to be very paranoid in a certain sense of they want to maximize their physical territory in many cases, because that helps uh, insulate them from neighboring states if there's some sort of frontier that stands between the central urban center of a state and the neighbors. Uh, that's more of a uh, 19th century fear, because now, of course, if you have a highly sophisticated enemy, they can still reach you pretty easily with ICBMs and so on. Well, physical frontiers don't work as much. But even then, those still help because it's it's harder to occupy a country if they have to march across something like the Midwest in order to get to the urban centers uh, on, say, the East Coast and so on. And so physical size is of a big concern to states. And one of the nice things about size, about incorporating more cities in, about bringing in more people in general, is these are more people that you can extract wealth from. And a wealthier state is a state that's able to preserve itself more easily. The downside of having a lot of people is there might be a lot of different interests, however, uh, especially if you're a geographically diverse place where people on... Uh, on one side of the country might be a different linguistic group, a different ethnicity, 
they might have different ideology. And those people then might decide they no longer have enough in common with the central government. And they then might launch some sort of attempt at overthrowing the state or maybe a secession movement. And these can greatly threaten the state. And so there's a nice little intro here from Rothbard on that, on this issue of war, revolution, and how the stakes are very, very high for the states. And you see really in a lot of commentary from non-Rothbardian circles that why did the state end up being so successful? Why did it become the dominant form of political governance in the world? And one reason commonly given is that because states are very good at war. And this is why the state managed to triumph over uh, decentralized non-state structures like, say, um, the Hansa or, say, feudalism. These were all sorts of physical and um, uh, coercive civil government that worked in a certain sense, but it was they, they had no permanent bureaucracy. They had no clear center where there was uh, one group that could direct a large military operation. And the one theory is that these groups then lost out to the state because of that. It was the very, it was the centralized nature of the state, the state, the, the fact that the state could extract taxes with its bureaucracy very easily. And importantly, by the time of the 19th century, it could draft people. You could use conscription as well, which was very, very rare uh, in periods prior to that time. Uh, supposedly the the old dark ages. You couldn't, it was very, you basically had to beg the nobles to maybe give you some troops. And if there was any uh, required military service, it was a quid pro quo. The central government offered you something in return. And so as time went on, these states became more centralized and this all built on itself. We, we, we have more access to capital. We have more military uh, material. And now we can protect the state all the better from both foreign and domestic threats. But of course, as Rothbard notes, right, you're constantly in a state of fear about your neighbor state becoming more powerful and getting more cannons and more boats. And so that is something that states constantly are trying to grapple with. And that's part of the reason I like this essay, too, is, is it provides a real basic introduction to international relations as well, which is, I think, is far too much mm -hmm. ignored uh, by people who uh, promote laissez-faire as well. There needs to be a lot more attention given to that. Unfortunately, Rothbard doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the basic theory behind it here. Well, I just wonder if the political class would admit to itself anyway, privately, that the domestic threat to its uh, authority or power or image is actually far greater because, I mean, say what you will about the Chinese or the Indians or the Russians or even the Brazilians or something. They really these these external states pose virtually negligible threats to the actual physical geography, the actual physical integrity of the United States and its government structures. I mean, the idea of any of them launching missiles or some sort of ground or sea invasion against us is, is at, at least at present, under current conditions, uh, almost unthinkable. Surely they are making their own uh, international chess moves, but they're not threatening the physical United States. So, you know, I think that's, I think that, I think Rothbard would have agreed with that in 1973, even with the weapon systems we had then or whatever. But I also think that 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 he's in effectively saying that when he says, "Well, gee, look, what do they? What kind of crimes do they treat most harshly? They, it's crimes that are against the state itself, right? Like, uh, obviously, we all know that when a, when a police officer is killed, that much more is made of that than when a, a private individual is killed in terms of the murder investigation, 
or the pomp and circumstance around the funeral. We know that, you know, things like trees and subversion, counterfeiting, tax evasion. Uh, Murray says, well, you know, they go after these things so harshly because these things strike at the root of the legitimacy of the state. And so I would I would imagine that, you know, a Nancy Pelosi, let's say, despite her rhetoric, actually worries a lot more about recalcitrant Americans than she does, let's say, about the Chinese government. Yes, I, I, this is one of the more fun sections of the essay as well, is uh, pointing out that states tend to basically freak out when anyone opposes a state agent. Of course, they couldn't care less if uh, you shot a construction worker and they, <laughs> they don't, even though those people, of course, are very important to the functioning of our society, they don't expend much effort. And in contrast, worry, uh, try to get back stolen property, right? How much effort are police going to expend on that? Now, if you steal something that the state highly values, uh, they'll spare no expense in trying to get that back. And then, yes, if you uh, shoot a police officer, and there's special laws even just for the federal bureaucracy, just killing any sort of federal agent is uh, some big, horrible, worse crime than shooting a private citizen. And this this, this now, if you, if you shoot a federal agent, that, that makes it subject to federal law, whereas in a normal society, right, if you murder a person, you murdered a person, and then you're subject to the local legal framework for that. But we've escalated up and provided extra laws for uh, people who work in government. And there's actually some of these rules in the works right now. Uh, Canada is currently considering in Parliament uh, rules to make uh, it even worse for suspects who are suspected of harassing a member of Parliament and other government agents. And even in Colorado, there's a state bill in the works to uh, produce harsher sentences for anyone who harasses a member of the General Assembly. Whereas if you just harass some poor schmo, well, yeah, that's illegal, but uh, you'll get a lighter sentence than if you uh, dare make life unpleasant for your local state senator. And uh, people do this with a straight face, and they, they have a different set of laws for the state and its agents. And this is just a simple fact uh, under most regimes. Well, that is really terrible. I mean, that's literally creating a different class of person because they happen to get into the state legislature of Colorado, which isn't exactly, uh, you know, curing cancer. <laughs> These uh, are not the elites on. of the world, to no, say the least. No, But you could see their paranoia uh, was a really big deal when the whole uh, quote-unquote coup occurred in Washington back on January 6th, right? You could see just... Uh, how little it took for these people to think that they were about to be overthrown and they were all going to be mm-hmm. murdered and no one appreciated how much they did for the country and how dare these hayseeds uh, think that they could just waltz into the Capitol whenever they wanted. So you can see just uh, the uh, the underlying view of the regime and its agents uh, uh, as toward the, the taxpayers who actually pay all the bills. Well, as for this, you know, we got the domestic problems for the state and we should all try to be domestic problems for the state. Uh, but th- this idea of how states relate to one another and why aren't they all in an impermissible state of anarchy vis-a-vis each other, which was, I think, a wonderful point Rothbard made. But he he delves into this idea of international law and its origins and he brings up maritime law, law of, of international shipping, which is really fascinating. I think Stefan Kinsella may have done some work on maritime, but the point, what his main point here is, is this was private law and it was necessitated 
by the realities, the exigencies of international shipping, the needs of that, that, uh, you know, that it was in their own interest as international or global shipping companies to develop this body of law. And that, I think, uh, is a remarkable lesson that we don't think about very much. Also, I think, shows how much even states have to admit that trade is extremely important, that trade is difficult to manage, that you don't want to mess with it too much, even if it's not people who you have actual control over or sailing under your flag or they don't necessarily fall within your purview. Uh, you don't want to you don't want to stop trade because this could end up really impoverishing even your regime. Uh, because there's that implies a certain tacit acceptance that there's a lot going on in the economy that the state actually isn't responsible for and relies upon. And of course, part of their, their attempt to justify themselves is say, well, we protect all of this and we make it all happen. But it was, as you know, in the time of weak states that you started to see this international law really start to build itself up and try and uh, create ways that uh, merchants and sailors could really protect themselves from others. And uh, in many ways, it's been extremely successful. Yes, states are involved. States have uh, intervened to uh, combat pirates and piracy and a variety of other uh, problems that inhibit trade. But it's certainly this is not something that the state created. And as Rothbard notes, right, trade, uh, wealth, private sector activity, all those things that the state wants and which the state claims to protect actually predate the state. And the, and the state was only able to sustain itself by skimming off a significant percentage of the pre-existing wealth and then uh, using it to create its its armies and its its bureaucracy and all those things that it uses now to coerce the people who create the actual wealth. And of course, up until relatively recently, actually, in human history, Actual wars were fought between states themselves or what we, we would think of today as states. And there were civilians weren't really involved in war. And oftentimes there were even private mercenaries involved. So as Hoppe points out, if I recall, in the introduction, the introductory chapter to Democracy, the God that Failed, he says, you know, World War I was very, very different in the sense that it was the first ideological war, at least in terms of the U.S. participation. It wasn't just fought over physical territory. And when we think about the history of war, I mean, there were certainly times where civilians uh, had their lives at least largely unchanged while the, uh, the, the, the mercenary forces or the king's forces went at it. Yeah, this is one of those areas where it's hard to believe that the people who uh, fly the flag of enlightenment in the Renaissance want to return to uh, the ways of the ancient world. Things were far worse in terms of warfare uh, in the ancient world. You, you put entire cities to the sword mm. on a regular basis, starvation campaigns. I mean, just, to, just look at how the old empires of the East functioned and the Greeks weren't exactly enlightened when it came to warfare and the Romans, of course, were just horrific. And so I'm not sure why anybody would want to return to that sort of thing. Yes, indeed, it was during the Middle Ages, largely just out of the fact that the states were too weak to do much else. Uh, they couldn't field humongous armies to go in and destroy entire cities uh, very regularly. It did happen on occasion, but I think there was a recognition also that if you went and you destroyed the food supply, that could really come back to be a big, significant problem for you. 
uh, even if it was in a neighboring territory, because there wasn't there weren't these these clear borders. It wasn't <laughs> if you decimated a neighboring territory and they had no food and there was a famine, uh, this necessarily didn't leave your territory off the hook. And so in many cases, actually, the deaths that occurred among uh, civilians were indirect in the sense of disease and starvation and so on that were just a, a natural byproduct of war in many cases. But yeah, the terror bombings of uh, World War II, the idea that the people in this neighboring country are somehow your inferior uh, and so therefore all be killed or at least killed in very large numbers. Yeah, mm -hmm. this is this is largely a modern invention. It's not to say it never happened before, but two factors got in the way. One was, uh, at least in the West, in Europe, the the fact that all these people were part of Christendom. And so really the only thing that uh, distinguished them was the fact that they just happened to live under a different prince. But some of those jurisdictions were so small, it occurred to people as rather absurd to think that the people five miles over <laughs> in the neighboring kingdom along the Rhine were somehow your inferiors, especially if you may have been from that place or maybe had married someone from that place and so on. They may not even have spoken a different language necessarily. And so, uh, and then the fact that there just wasn't as much capital that the states could control. These, these were all important issues. And, and I think that did lend itself to the fact that then uh, in modern times, post uh, early modern period, especially by the 18th century, that you were attempting to to create this international law that prevented the widespread destruction of capital and non-combatants. But uh, that basically disappeared by the 20th century. Well, he's got this little footnote from the historian John Ulrich Neff about passports. And passports were, were literally created to identify non-combatants so that they could travel during wartime, right? I mean, that's that's really a fascinating tidbit there. But more importantly, when, when uh, Neff says here in, in Rothbard's footnote, during most of the 18th century, it seldom occurred to Europeans to abandon their travels in a foreign country, which their own was fighting. So, you know, this idea, all of our arguments today about immigration and borders, we simply forget that in previous centuries, people just weren't very mobile, right? I mean, people were agrarian and they probably stuck close to home for most of their lives. And most of the big shifts in borders are the result of conquest and war. They So our, in some senses, our immigration and uh, border problems, they are kind of a modern issue. Well, yes, I think when you have an agrarian society, your people do tend to be much, much less mobile. In some, some cases, this was reinforced legally uh, because you had the existence of serfs and who literally could not, they were tied to the land and they just couldn't move around as they want. Now, there are always a certain class of people who had been separated from the land who uh, might move from city to city looking for work. They were artisans. They were intellectuals. But that was a relatively small part of the population. For most people, they were tied to the land. And also, it was hard to get to a city that was a thousand miles away. So yes, the mobility of people was, was much more limited in those days. And I think, yes, you didn't have uh, significant movements of, uh, say, you had a small principality with 10,000 residents, and then you had a thousand people from a neighboring city just show up and want to move in. That was a pretty rare event. You might have a lot of refugees maybe who were moving around in some cases where uh, some terrible war occurred and where a state actually did manage to uh, starve out a large number of civilians and noncombatants and so on. And that those created pretty unpleasant and big displacements 
uh, starvation in many cases, plagues and so on. So these were all uh, bad things. But for the, it was by no uh, record that I've seen where there are big, significant movements uh, before you started to have a lot of urbanization, industrialization of people moving. And that would that tended to be gradual, though. Research has actually shown that industrialization was slower than people thought. But you did have a fair number of people moving from agrarian areas to cities, even by the 16th, maybe even the 15th century. But again, these these weren't enormous numbers of people. That really started to accelerate in the 18th and 19th century. And that caused certainly some social problems. Uh, but that seems to have been more of a product of capital accumulation and states and and the fact that wealth and the chance to increase your earnings moved from the agrarian world to the urban world. And so a lot of people tended to to move in. But even then, they wouldn't move just to a, to a place a thousand miles away because there were a lot of uh, burdens that would come along with that. And you see that in Europe even now. People don't move in large numbers from France to Germany just because they might be able to make 5% more uh, at a job. It's uh, There are a lot of things that keep people in their places. And yeah, did the state cause that? I mean, I think one thing that the state did is the state created this idea uh, in the state system of really solid borders, that there's there's this line. And on that side of it is Germany, and on the other side of it is France. And prior to the creation of the state system, borders tended to be much more mobile. And I, I'm intrigued a little bit by some of Mises's work on this, where he admits that, of course, over time, demographics in certain places change. People do, in fact, move around, especially in places that are relatively close. So we might move to the city, and then we move one city over, and that over time, religious, linguistic realities change. But in Mises's view, he thought that borders would just change to reflect that, that uh, your political jurisdiction would, would be changed, would be modified, would, would flow over time to a certain extent to reflect modern political realities. What the state has done, and this is actually much more damaging than people think, is create this notion of, well, once a border is laid down, it stays that way forever. And this is what creates a lot of the problems that you now see, where you get tiny minorities of people in, say, a state in the United States, where over time the demographics changed, and now 40% uh, of the population believes the world should be one way, and 60% believes the world should be another way. Now, there might have been more of a mix prior to that, or people were just more united ideologically, so it wasn't really a problem. But over time, things changed. But now, rather than these people just joining a different, more appropriate jurisdiction, the, the belief in these solid state borders now has everyone say, well, you, you can't change the borders of California. That would be madness. That's just crazy. That's radical. Or you can't change the borders of the United States in any way. And it's considered some hyper-radical view to support that even though that's a pretty relatively recent idea uh, invented by the state, uh, this permanence of borders. And I, uh, I think that if we got away from that idea and started viewing borders as much more malleable and changeable, uh, a lot of the political problems we uh, face in the Western world would be changed. Uh, but uh, the state still holds a lot of power over that issue. And people seem pretty wedded to uh, these borders that exist. And in many cases, it's almost a quasi-religious view is that, well, America's the size and shape it is. 
because God wills it, I guess. Uh, it's, it's, if they don't actually believe that, that it's, it's pretty close to that belief, that the natural order is determined this is the shape of this political jurisdiction and any major change is uh, some sort of blasphemy. So Rothbard finishes the book with a very short couple pages on this, this wonderful concept from Albert J. Nock of uh, state power versus social power. And I'll tell you what, this is not going to make environmentalists happy. I mean, Rothbard basically says, you know, social power is power over nature. All of our civilization, all of our material well-being, all of our social cooperation, all of our abundance stems from the fact that nature, which is forever trying to kill us and create entropy all around us, is something that human beings have wrestled with and, and created wealth and food and structures and highways and all kinds of things uh, and contrast all that with state power, which is necessarily destructive rather than cooperative. But I just thought I was thinking about Rachel Carson or somebody like that when I heard that social power is power over nature, the living standards achieved by men in mutual exchange. What a great concept by Nock. Yeah, and it's notable that when we're, we're looking at what is this difference between uh, state power and social power, is this is in many ways something that was invented by the liberals uh, themselves in that the word society, as we think of it, uh, is a relatively new term. Something that comes to us from the 18th and 19th centuries, it's, it's this thing that isn't the state. That there's a society out there. These are these are voluntary associations. These are these are market relations. These are your religious uh, communities, and that there are components of society that must be outside the purview of the state. And so the, this conflict is real. There's the state, and then there's society, which is these other main institutions that the state spent so long trying to subjugate: the family, the local community, the churches. These are natural enemies of the state, and the state wants to clamp down on them and get rid of them. But it's these organizations that have really made life worth living that provide really the basic emotional and physical needs of individuals. And uh, the state, however, wants to, wants to take from that. The state wants to make sure those organizations don't get, don't get out of hand, don't offer too much of a, a competing pole of power. And that the state can can really maintain its power over its people. But in terms of really asserting the stuff of life, that you know, creating what, what life is worth living for, uh, the state offers none of this. And uh, the state only, if it's able to prevent or uh, provide some sort of protection or some sort of preservation of these, it only comes from uh, really taking its percentage from the wealth created somewhere else, whether that's uh, wealth that can be denominated in dollars or not. And so it's always important to see the growth of the state and society as two different entities that are really actually quite at odds with each other. And that uh, the state, sure, if, if you want to be one of these scholars who says, yeah, the state does lots of bad things, but but look at it, it provides some protection, provides some police power, uh, during when it's not wartime, there's a fair amount of safety and so on. That's fine, but it doesn't change the fact that uh, without the taxpayers, without the capitalists, without uh, the people who are building up families and real institutions that provide wealth, that uh, the state really would have no purpose at all. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to recommend this book 
to anybody who hasn't read it, and some of you probably have read it, but it's it's a you know a good refresher, a good quick read. You can read this in an hour over the weekend. We have it available at our site in HTML format, and at just Mises.org, type in Anatomy of the State. Uh, we have both a little hardcover and a little softcover. They just cost a few dollars. If you want a physical copy, we'll get one right out to you. And Ryan, I'm really re- going to recommend people check this out because re- regardless of whether they come down maybe on the Misesian side, that government's necessary to secure certain rights or whether they come down on the Rothbardian side, which is this purely a predatory or parasitic institution, they're, they're going to be challenged a little bit by this book. And uh, look, we just drew out points on this book that that prob- we, we probably just talked longer than it takes to read it. So uh, I, I think it's fantastic. I think it's it's definitely vintage Rothbard. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing 1970s about it. In other words, you could have read this book in 1920, you could read it in 2020, and I think all the points ring uh, as true uh, today as they would have in any other era. So all that said, check it out, ladies and gentlemen. Ryan McMakin, thank you so much for your time, and I hope everybody has a great weekend. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.